0: Welcome to the Tech for Good podcast. This is the HR tech season, and I'm joined today by Didier Elzinga from CultureAmp. How are you today, sir?
1: I am good. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, Tell us a little bit about the company before we jump into a little bit more about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. So CultureAmp, for anyone that doesn't know it, uh, we are an employee experience platform, so... Our mission is to create a better world of work. And we work with around 4,000 companies around the world, um, helping them build high-performing teams and deliver on their business goals by putting culture first. And so we focus on understanding your people, building those high-performing cultures, and then also growing those people. So all of the above. How do you do that? So it's it's a combination of different things. I mean, it, our life started as an employee engagement platform. So we really helped organizations listen to their employees understand their employees through surveys and other tools and then pulling that data together wherever the data was Mm. joining the company leaving the company while you're at the company we use analytics to help people get insight from that data and then most importantly we focus on how do you use that data to drive positive behavior change so a lot of the work we do now is actually working with managers in the platform to help them uh, improve wherever it is they need to improve coaching skills um, giving feedback thinking about adaptability and resilience, all of those sorts of things. So it's the end-to-end spectrum, collecting the data, understanding the data, and then acting on it.
0: When did you know that uh, data was going to be the new gold?
1: (laughs) Well, I think data is one of those funny things. Data, data, I switch between the two constantly. Um, It was this insight that I was looking around about 10 years ago and realized that we know all of this about someone who might buy a hamburger from us, yet we've had people that have worked with us for 10 years and we don't we don't understand them at the same level. Mm. And so I often think if culture is a, a, a promise to a customer, brand is how you... Sorry, if brand is a promise to a customer, culture is how you deliver on that promise. And so for me, that intertwine, I was looking at going why are the marketers is getting all the fun. Why have they got all the data? What can we do on the people and culture side to, to bring that data to bear? So that's that's... 10 years ago I guess would be my answer.
0: And was that the genesis of the company or did the company start you mentioned it started more of a, as an engagement platform.
1: Yeah, well that insight though came from that beginning. So my previous life was in film. So I spent 13 years working for Hollywood. Worked really? on Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Batman, Superman. What did you do? Uh, Computer generated imagery. Oh, so wow. uh, the company that I ran Rising Sun Pictures Uh, I started as a software engineer, worked as an artist, ended up as the CEO, and we would create computer generated imagery for Harry Potter, four, five, six, seven, eight, et cetera, et cetera. And the genesis for CultureAmp came from me realizing that I loved filmmaking, I loved storytelling, I loved image creation, but I wanted to make more of a difference in the world. And the thing I cared about the most was actually the people in the culture. What is the culture that we're building to create this film? What is the culture that's coming together to tell the story? And so I had already built another software company, my background is software. So I thought I'm still young enough to fail. I'm going to go build a software company. What do I care about? I care about people and culture. And I, I used to joke and probably still do that a CEO is a glorified psychiatrist. So why don't we bring data to bear? And that was, that was kind of the kicking off point.
0: Yeah. I, I know like the data analytics tools now available to everybody are amazing. What was that like? 10 years ago, like, did you have to build your own or was there an off the shelf or how'd you go about that?
1: Look, I I mean, the tools we have available today are amazing but we're still a long way from where we could be. And I think 10 years ago, it was still incredibly sophisticated. You had, you know, your Taos Watsons and Connexes and Aon Hewitts and and these big heavyweights in the space that had incredibly smart IO psychologists that were helping companies run these surveys. (laughs) The challenge at the time was that it was a very heavy process. People would go away and they'd run this thing and then they'd produce thousands of pages of paper of reports that people were meant to consume. And so a lot of what we were looking at was like, yes, the data in real time brings insight, but it's really about like making it accessible. How, how do we use technology to get this into the hands of more people? Um, how do we help answer those questions at, at a greater scale than's ever been done before? It's not necessarily that we came in and said, everything you've done to date is wrong. Here's a whole bunch of magic, you know, algorithms will do it all for you. It was actually the way you're doing, it's great. It's just that it needs to be real time. It needs to be given to the managers. And then we need to work with those managers with their data and help them on the journey and and help them go in a way that you can only do through technology. You can't do that through a consulting service. Um,
0: Where do you stand on uh, privacy versus data? Because it's Mm. it's the key, the key big topics that you get asked about, I'm sure.
1: So there's, there's a couple of different layers to this. So the first thing is when you are in the organizational listing space, so if you're running an employee engagement survey or a culture survey, or specifically you know, diversity inclusion or some of those things too, your first uh, responsibility has to be to create a safe space. So you have to collect that information from people and then aggregate it so that it can be useful for the org to improve but not so much as it identifies any individual or puts anyone at risk. And so that's been, that's always been a big thing. And it's something, you know, our first employee was a, a psychologist. You know, we have a whole team of people scientists and we take that really seriously. Yeah. How do we help companies create a safe space? It's one of the reasons people use a platform like us rather than just you know, doing it in Google Forms or something, is that we're actually managing that on behalf of the employees. There's a whole bunch of smarts that go into the reporting so that you get useful aggregate reporting, but you can't drill in and understand what anyone said. So that's the first piece. The second piece, which is what we're seeing now with GDPR and everything else, is people having to shift the way they think about it. Like it used to be 15 years ago, just collect all the data, collect anything you can. And at some point we'll look at it and it might be useful. And I think now, particularly in Europe, we're seeing more of a, actually, no. Unless you can explain to the person you're collecting it from how it is useful to them, you don't have a right to collect that data. You can't just keep it and hope you'll do something later. And so I think we've seen, and this is where the, data ha- uh, the tools have got a lot more sophisticated. We're seeing platforms evolve to be much more careful in what data is being stored so that it's only the, the data that's needed and nothing more.
0: Um, with regards, so if I'm an employee in a company, um and is it just like surveys i'm taking part in or is my performance data being integrated into your solution um and like is it a full end to end this is your this is your capabilities this is your motivations this is your predictive analysis on your future
1: oh lots to unpack there so yes we are it's... a full end to end platform and we do help organizations all of that so we help them with understanding we help them with the you know, performance development, we help them with individual development, but we don't necessarily allow anyone to cross correlate all that data. So we will at the aggregate level. So, you know, our customers can look at it and say, what's the engagement of my high performers and vice versa. But what they can't do is go, what? How, how motivated are you right now? And what's your performance rating? So some of that stuff is individual and is looked at with your manager and with other people around you. And some of that stuff is confidential or anonymous and is aggregated and only looked at in cohorts because you do want to be able to bring that data to bear. So like when we're helping on the diversity front, one of the things we'll look at a lot is like majority minority splits. So let's look at the experiences of employees at the company And let's look at are there big differences between different majorities and minorities? And it could be gender, it could be race, uh, it it could be tenure. And so we can look at that and go, oh, wait a second, why are women having a very different experience to men? Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that something that's telling us there's a problem here that we really need to do something about? And one of the real challenges, um, maybe to your point, is we have to help take people on a journey on how to use and understand that data because. Statistically, the data can tell you one thing, but then you'll show people that at the individual level and they'll make incorrect inferences from the data. So a really good example would be, you know, your data might show you that women in engineering are more likely to leave than men. And then if we show that to a manager and say, hey, you've got Mary and four men, they're like, oh, Mary's more likely to leave. Well, actually, statistically, Mary is not more likely to leave. A hundred Marys is more likely to leave, but not Mary herself. So you shouldn't make a decision on her based on that statistical inference. And so there's a lot of um, nuance in giving people better data. And it's that data Rams, you know, I need um, better data, not more data. Like how do we, how do we help educate, not make things worse?
0: Now that you've opened up this can of worms, let me jump into a little bit. So um, equity in the hiring process and in in promotion and, in all of that seems to be something that a lot of people are trying to solve right now yeah um this the stats are out there that women are going to be more qualified than men over the next 10 years and um, mm-hmm. they're not already and um, they're going to be performing better in the workplace um, do you think it'll actually flow the other way completely when we get when we get there or how, how do you think it's going to pan out to, to, to do this right
1: So I think that when you go down this journey, and and this is obviously there are many greater greater minds than mine on this topic, so I I share my thoughts but don't necessarily propose to be an expert. Um, But certainly my own learning on when you go down the diversity front and really the inclusion front, which is about trying to level that playing field and make it a place where more people feel included and part of it the further you go down, the further you realize there there is no finish line. So sure. you start by going, oh, it seems ridiculous that given that you know, half the people in the world are women and half are men, why are 90% of our leaders men? That doesn't seem to make sense. We really should focus on this. Hmm. And so you start to get improvements and then you're like, actually, that's great. But if they're all white women that went to the same schools as the white men, are we really changing things that much? And so then you start looking at other things. And the more you look at it, the more you realize that there are barriers to entries everywhere. And the problems with those barriers to entry is they compound over time. So my wife actually introduced me to this idea of compound privilege. Like I'm the CEO of CultureAmp, presumably because I'm good at what I do, but there's probably 10, 20 other people out there, but for the hand they were given every step of the way could have been even better than me but they never had that chance. And it wasn't like they and I bid for it at the same point and I just beat them. They were given a, a worse hand from birth and they were just never even given that opportunity. And so once you start looking at that, you realize actually there's a lot of layers of the onion that we have to keep unpeeling before we can start talking about having something that is but equitable.
0: It, but is it is it the, like you're running a company, you're there to make profit. You're also, I mean, you obviously want to make a a, a dent in the world and all that nice fluffy stuff as well um you're not gonna so some diversity experts are saying that you need to level up the playing field and um, mm-hmm. your hiring process but if that's at the if if that's at like not getting the best person for the job is that not gonna harm the company itself
1: sure but i i think it's hard to argue that it's not that you're losing talent i mean if you look out there and go you know are there no good women at these roles? Of course there are. They're harder to find and you have to compete more for them, but they're just as good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I look at it in two different ways. The first thing is, it's not just that there's lots of research that more diverse, more inclusive teams perform better. There is, there's plenty. Mm-hmm. But I actually look at it the other way and go, well, I quite enjoy going to the pub and talking to people not like me.
0: Yeah, if me If I too. went
1: and they were all the same as me, it's not very interesting. So I want to live in that world. So if I'm going to choose to create a corporate culture, that is a single thing. Where's the overwhelming evidence that that provides higher performance.
0: Hmm.
1: There is none. It's just that it's easier. It's, it's harder not to, to it's harder to go build something different. And so we don't. And I think we have to challenge ourselves. First of all, we do it because it's the world we want to live in. You know, secondly, it's not a merit argument. Like, you know, there are plenty of great people. It just actually means the companies have to work harder because they, they don't even know who you are and they don't want to work for you. So now you've got to go across you know, both of those bridges if you want to bring them in, but it's worth it. And then I do think there is a certain element that if we're really going to make a difference, we have to be willing to play the longer game and realize that if you're investing in you know, gender diversity or you're investing in you know, racial diversity or whatever it might be, the end game here is that those people you bring in grow and develop And many of them will go and be successful somewhere else too. And that's net, net a good thing. And we all win. Hmm. If we're all just fighting over the same people at the top, that's not going to help either.
0: What, uh, what elements of your business and the business of your clients has COVID accelerated? France.
1: Yeah, everything. Um, I think what it's, it's accelerated, obviously all these conversations around what does the future of work look like? Uh, You know, do we, you know, what are our working norms? How yeah. do we work together? What do offices look like? And those ones are obvious. I think the less obvious ones is is um, it's accelerated the challenges of mental well-being in the workplace because we're in a world where people are struggling and they've been struggling for a long time, and it's getting very hard to ignore that. And I think that's going to, it was already a problem or something that organizations were waking up to, but now it's right in your face. And so we've seen that accelerated massively. Um, Inclusion and diversity is also a huge challenge now that everyone is distributed. Like in some ways it's good because it creates more access, but in other ways it perpetuates the same challenges that existed before. And so that's becoming a big problem. And then the other one I would say is managers, and manager capability has always mattered. (laughs) But the last year has just shone a light on that, like nothing else. Because those people that are struggling, they need more from their managers. And their managers are people that are struggling too. So they're kind of getting slammed in both directions.
0: (laughs) It's a a really interesting time. And with regards any data on remote working and team norms, what are you you seeing from actual team members?
1: So we're seeing it, it, it shifts. Um, so there's no static view, like on week to week, it'll, it'll move. But uh, if I look across all the data that we've seen so far, very small number of people want to come back full time. You're talking 10 to 15% of people want to be back in the office full time. Um, most people want to be back in the office, but maybe two or three days a week. Nice. So everyone's trying to figure out this, this, this balance. And there's a percentage of people that don't. And why people want to come back is split too. So roughly half the people want to come back because they're just dying for more social contact and they need to be around people. And then the other half are dying to get them back into the office because they need someone to do a quiet phone call because they can't do it at home. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that so- comes down
0: to the, the uh, equity piece as well. Like um, I I live I, I have a nice home office. My kids are in a nursery but if I was in a high-rise block and I had four kids at home, I couldn't afford a nursery, I didn't have access to a, a new laptop and all, all of this stuff, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to perform in the same way as, as that other guy. You know, yeah, so. and,
1: and think about like early career people. like you know, Think about the share accommodation we had when we first left home. you imagine trying to work out of that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not for my life in Melbourne, I can't so yeah i mean that that stuff is is definitely uh you know something we're seeing playing out and then the other thing that we the other things we're seeing which are really interesting is uh people are are wearing out not just burning out but wearing out and that's playing out in different ways so people's job satisfaction is changing and there's a kind of interesting thing that's going on where for for many people their job was a a social contract. So I do these things you need me to do. I get to be in this place. I get to interact with these people. And the sum total is something that I'm happy with. And what we've seen is people that have been sent home, they're not having the social interaction. They're not having the incidental stuff that they used to enjoy. And so now all they have is their job. And so all day they're doing the thing that's the one thing that they're being asked to do. And a lot of people actually go, I don't even like this. When all this, this is all that it is. This is not actually what I want to do. I wanna go do something else. So we're seeing much higher attrition across the board as there's a lot of people that are going, actually, this is not the bargain that I, I wanted to have. I need to do something different. And they don't know what they wanna do. They just don't wanna do what they're doing right now. So we're seeing a lot of churn um, in people shifting roles.
0: When did you know you were on to something?
1: So interestingly, when we started life as a company, we the first thing I built was a performance development product. So my initial idea was, Why is it that we always have an annual backwards looking universally loathed performance appraisal when it should be a continuous forward looking coaching conversation? So we actually built a product around that. And I had lots of interest, but it was hard to get it turned into something. We looked at that and thought, this is not quite getting the traction we want. And I think we're probably about six years too early on that idea. And instead we went, well, what if we took the same idea, but we applied it at the organization level? And so we started looking at employee engagement, and we found that that was like overnight was the difference because everyone already had that challenge. Orgs were already doing that, and we were just finding it helping them do it in a better way. And so we knew almost straight away. And we basically put together a like a four page deck. I went and pitched it to ten CEOs. Four of them said they'd buy it if we built it. Uh, we got our first customer. All we had was the um, the survey collection piece we had no reporting so we were building the reporting while the while the data was coming right. in and then <laughs> off we went
0: <laughs> were you uh were you doing uh, uh, were you bootstrapping this or were you uh... Yeah, we
1: bootstrapped the company to about a million dollars in revenue oh, wow. back in 2015
0: what was that process like when you were like okay now i have to go get other people in to get it to the next stage when you like had your baby and you had it up to a certain point it must have been a bitter. Bitter and exciting pill to swallow at the same time.
1: No, I was looking forward to it. I, I, mean, I was working on it on my own, and I was in a co-working space next to uh, Doug and John, and they ended up becoming my co-founders. And we brought in Rod, who was the fourth as well, and we all joined in together. So we're all software engineers. Yeah. And, it, and going back to the diversity piece, white, thirty-something, IT, male, brunettes. So like. <laughs>
0: no yeah. diversity on any of it yeah.
1: um, which is a debt we've been paying down ever since but the um, threat. <laughs> yeah uh, we it was great it was a lot of fun it was just actually fun to have people to work with again and and like i had been before i started this running a 250 person company so i was looking forward to i wasn't sitting there going if i could do this all on my own i'd be happy i was like all right cool let's get this going let's go hire people let's get started and then as i said our first employee was um dr jason mcpherson who's our chief scientist yeah.
0: Interesting. So uh, you went, you did, how many series have you done at this stage? Funding.
1: So we bootstrapped and then we've done five.
0: You've done five. Wow. Do they get harder or easier as you go?
1: It's an interesting question. Um, They just change. Each one is different to the last. Um, I think you get used to the psychology more and you... Yeah, so I don't know if they get easier. You just get used. Probably like kids; they're not any easier, but you kind of have a better sense of what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: and what's the what's the ultimate goal?
1: To deliver on the mission. To build something, um, you know, multi generational, a long run company that helps other customers or helps our customers, helps other companies create a better world of work. And for me, what I care about is what type of company we are at scale to. So are we a culture-first company at scale? And how do we operate? And how do we run? The sort of near-term way we think about that is what does it mean to amplify the experience and the impact of over 100 million people? So that's roughly 1% of the world's population. So that's our, that's our goal we're going to get to. We, we, we should get there in the next three to five years, and uh, then we'll set another goal.
0: That's pretty, that's pretty incredible. So, uh, 4,000 customers right now. Today,
1: yeah. Sorry,
0: you 4,000 customers. How many staff do you have?
1: Uh, approaching 500.
0: Wow. How, how do you manage 500 people?
1: Um, hanging on. <laughs> that... <laughs> yeah. And I mean, to make life complicated, we've been, we're in Melbourne, San Francisco, New York, London, and obviously in today's world, that's exploded even further, but, where you know, four different hub time zones. And we, we've been that since we've been about 200 people. So a lot of what we spend our time on at CultureAmp is the values of the business. You know, how, how do they guide what we do and how we operate? And then one of those values, so the first one is have the courage to be vulnerable, which really sets the tone for the type of culture that we want. And then the fourth value is actually amplify others. And so one of the things that I tell people when they join the company, because often people say, oh, what advice would you have for me? And I would say it doesn't. Whichever office you're in, even if you're in Melbourne, which has the largest um, population, more than half the company is where you aren't. So you have to learn how to create relationships across time zones, mm-hmm. across geographies, because we're one company in four places. We're not four separate places all trying to you know work together somehow. And so just running that running that challenge and that we do a lot of things to bring that to life so like we have a a situation room three days a week where anyone in the company can join it's half an hour and we have different leaders just sharing progress updates and there's an option intel so it's really a way of connecting anyone in the company with anything else that's going on in other places Um, we do a lot of things like that really designed to try and help drive that culture that we want and that culture that we need to be successful
0: Now, it sounds like you've had unbelievable success. Um, but can you give me anything that you would have done differently over the years or done quicker?
1: Thousand things like, Oh, um, I mean, there's always, you always on the product front, there's always things like, well, why didn't we do this sooner? Why didn't we do that sooner? Um, I think when you look back, most of the things where you think you could have made the biggest difference actually come back to hiring. Like either if I'd only hired that person sooner, what a difference, they were amazing. But if we'd had them on earlier, it would have made a bigger difference. Or maybe we hung on too long with that person. Or we didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, you bring someone in and go, I didn't even realize we needed this, but like, where's this been all my life? So as you grow from, you know, 10 to 500 people, you're constantly realizing, oh, what's growth ops we've got got okay, that or what do you mean we need a dedicated support team oh why should what's the difference between account management and account executives all these things where you sit down and, and somebody helps you realize that there's actually a, a new way of doing this that you haven't been doing before and if you once you've added that it creates all this extra value um user experience design you know splitting up people science into behavioral science and different aspects all of these things so for me I wouldn't call them mistakes, but knowing what I know now, I would go back and make many different choices and different decisions. And I think we could probably have gone faster than we did. Um, Whether that's the goal is a different question.
0: (laughs) No, that's really interesting. But uh, a couple of questions to finish up. Um, Who out there inspires you in business? Mm.
1: One of the, the stories, and I've never met them, so I, I go just on the stories um, that have inspired me is um, Eve Chapard from Patagonia, because I think in his story, like in his original book, Let My People Go Surfing, he really told that story of no one believed that you could actually build a business that truly focused on sustainability. Everyone said, hey, that's nice. But if you want to build a global business, you've got to kind of put that bit to the side because you can't do it. And, you know, I think they demonstrated you can and not only can you, it is your brand and that's part of the power. And so for me, a lot of what I've drawn upon at CultureAmp has been the idea of the same thing, but for culture, like people talk about, oh, you know, that's all nice. But if you, you've got to be more ruthless than that, or you've got to you know, focus on this because otherwise you won't be successful. I sit down and go, well, that's your way. That's fine. But there are other ways. And a a relentless focus on putting culture first is what our product's about. It's also what we're about. And it's why we think we'll be successful. And we think it's what our customers need. So Patagonia would be a huge one. Taichi Ono, who's the the chair of um, Toyota. So a lot of what informed me when I was in the film days and, and certainly in the way I think about how businesses operate is that what I would call Eastern lean, and so a lot of the thinking behind that and just learning and yeah. And this real, you know, they have this, um, uh, Gemba Gamachi. I'm I'm not sure how to say it, but it's like, go see, like if you as a manager, if there's a problem, you don't read a report, you go with the person to see it. Mm -hmm. And you understand it yourself and first principles, all these sorts of things have heavily informed me. Um, and then the other one, uh, more recently, um, Brené Brown and uh, Ibrahim Kendi are two people who in reading their works, so Brené Brown on the power of vulnerability and Ibrahim Kendi on how to be an anti-racist have both heavily affected how I think about the world. And so they've inspired me a lot in terms of what type of business I'm trying to build.
0: And just a final question. Um, If uh, like, I'm sure a lot of young entrepreneurs trying to break into the HR tech space would look up to the journey that you went on. Um, what one piece of advice would you give them?
1: When people ask me like, what's your advice for an entrepreneur or, you know, what, what advice would you have for me starting my entrepreneurial journey? My usual advice is don't, um, it'll be harder than you think. Uh, and my second advice is don't. And then my third advice, if they, if they won't give up is like, okay, look, it'll take you a minimum of seven years to get to something that you can be proud of. So you've got to be willing to commit to that. At the minimum, you've got to be willing to spend two years and walk away with nothing to show for it and still be okay. And so if you're kind of like, look, I care enough about this problem that even if I fail, even if I spend two years and get nowhere, I'm okay with the idea that seven years from now, my friends will be partner at a law firm or they'll be doing this, they'll be doing that. and I'll still be sweating it out all right, now you can go do it. And then at that point, my piece of advice to you would be what matters is how many people believe in you, not how many people don't. Because early on, if your idea is a good one, everyone will tell you that it's a bad idea. And if nobody thinks it's a good idea, then maybe it's not. But if five or 10 people go, actually, that's really powerful. I would use that or whatever. You have something like treasure that, focus on them and ignore everybody else. That would be my advice. Because I've been told, no, like I've been told every step along the way, product won't work, the buyer's poor, there's not enough revenue, you'll never get to 100 million in revenue, you can't do it that way, you can't hire salespeople without commission, you can't do this, can't do that. Even today, I still get told, yeah, what you've done is nice, but you won't get to the next level. I've been been hearing that for 10 years. How do you know if you're wrong or if you're early? You don't. (laughs) I think... You, you need to be, yeah. you need to be naive and arrogant at the same time. <laughs> uh,
0: Didier, thanks so much for your time. That's us today. Um, really appreciate
1: it. Uh, really insightful.
0: I've learned lots, and uh, thank you so much for your time again.
1: My pleasure. Hopefully, it was useful to someone.